everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Dancing Lemur Knock Kreiner. Okay, that was better than I was expecting. Oh, no. I, I gave you enough. People will get enough of what you're expecting a little later. On today's episode, we'll be discussing why Corey thinks lemurs are dancing. Uh, before that, though, we will cover a recent rash of malware impacting an extremely popular computer game. And then we will end with our review of the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and cha-cha our way in, unfortunately. <laughs> So let's start this week with some news around what used to be one of my favorite games. Corey, did you ever play Minecraft when it was uh, still an to old Java honest, game? To be honest, I played it when it first came out, and I love and appreciate the game, but it's the game of my kids, so I mostly mm -hmm. vicariated it through them. To me, it's digital Legos for my kids' generation. I my foray into Minecraft was pre Microsoft acquisition where oh yeah I, for I, me too when it was Java yeah yep which it still is in in one situation as we'll see uh, but I know Microsoft the, I tried to get rid of it but uh, they still have they, it you can still play the Java edition that's one that supports mods which foreshadowing uh, whereas the Bedrock edition is more of my, Microsoft's rebuilt and like .NET C sharp whatever but anyways. Uh, so in the Minecraft community, if you use the old uh, but still maintain Java version, it supports modifying the game. You can add your own, let's say, um, textures to it to make everything look like ultra sharp and 4K. You can add your own like items to the game or even entire like modifications. There's no story in Minecraft, but you can add like as an example, story, story. elements. There's a story knew, in the, the Bedrock edition, by the way. Now, isn't this that the thing key, th key thing Microsoft added is a story mode? But no, no I agree with you. I, I, there, isn't there like mods that also defeat one of the cute novelties of Minecraft is its basic cute graphical nature? But they have beautifying ones where you can have ray trace reflected water. You can turn the blocks yep. more into these highly textured, and suddenly it's this highly graphical game. But well, I think mods are cool in general. I think that kind of defeats the whole purpose of the, the beauty and the simplicity of Minecraft. But like other games, you can mod Minecraft, at least the Java version. Um, and for the most part, there's two major websites that host these uh, these mod projects, for lack of a better word. Uh, CurseForge is one of the big ones. They're pretty big in a lot of modding communities uh, like World of Warcraft, Skyrim, all those. And then Bucket, B-U-K-K-I-T, is the other big one that's more Minecraft specific, as you, you might guess. Um, so just yesterday, as the time of recording this, uh, I I'm still follow a few like modding communities for like other games. And I noticed in those Discord chats and then on Reddit, people started pointing out that something fishy was going on in the, the Minecraft modding community. Um, and they actually found... Uh, what was effectively malware laced inside of a lot of really popular mods uh, for Minecraft. Uh, they ended up naming it Fracturizer uh, after the user that uploaded the most copies of this, this malware. And basically, there were reports from different mod authors that seemed to indicate someone had compromised their account, in some cases, potentially bypassing multi-factor authentication and use that access to inject this malicious code into existing mods. And many of these mods are included in what are called mod packs, basically bundles of really popular ones. As an example, there's a really popular one called Better Minecraft with over 4.6 million downloads. Uh, that one included some of these malicious mods rolled up into it. Now, pause for a second here uh, before we get into the details of the malware and what exactly it does. Um, there were indications that they were able to, some of these mod authors said they've got multi-factor authentication enabled. So that right off the bat, like scenarios are what? Like a adversary in the middle style of attack that could let them circumvent MFA, a vulnerability that lets them get past MFA, or I know at least CurseForge supports um, API-based access for mod management as an author, and APIs generally don't have 
multi-factor authentication. So maybe that's an avenue. An but either way, that's a bit concerning where typically the guidance would be, oh yeah, you, they probably got their credential compromised. And if they had had MFA, it would have been fine. But doesn't appear to be the case in these. Um, now, yeah, by the way, just, just to be a pure devil's advocate, some of the mod authors claim they had 2FA. Uh, could, I mean, if we're just adding all the things it could be, maybe it was just a claim. Maybe they didn't turn it on. They and now yes. they're, they're embarrassed about not having turned it on. I, I'm not saying that's what it is. I actually think like the you have perfectly demonstrated how phishing can do adversary in the middle attacks. And uh, it's not really breaking the MFA. It's stealing a session cookie. And once you have the session cookie, MFA is long gone. So there's definitely ways you can bypass it. Yep. So either way, like this is less than 24 hours old as of our recording. So I'm sure by the time even this episode comes out, there will be some more details. Um, but I wanted to chat about the malware because all things considered, it's pretty dang amazing from a like, uh, I mean, it's terrible. It's malware. But from a research perspective, it's way different than what I've seen historically in like this class of malware targeting video game mods and things like that. Like historically, when you see malware injected into a, a mod for a game or even the game itself like oftentimes these threat actors will use like off-the-shelf malware and inject it in and just use it as is basically there's not a lot of like custom malicious code writing for historically how these attacks typically work now that is not the case in this one it seems to be rather like built from scratch effectively now it's not as sophisticated in some ways as we'll get into but it does look like someone took the time to basically write all this from scratch and then carry out this coordinated, pretty widespread attack within this community. Um, one of the, as an example, so the malware itself, when it executes, so it executes by someone launching Minecraft with one of these malware laced mods installed. Uh, when that causes the malware to execute, it can actually self replicate to any Java file, any jar file on the computer period minecraft or not if you happen to be like a java application developer it'll infect all of your other java files as well too which is so this by the way is uh you i think the industry including us has started to just use malware because so many people don't that there's more specific terms for types of malware like a worm versus a trojan versus a virus but it is accurate to say this is a true virus. I mean, the definition of a virus is a type of malware that spreads file to file on the local computer, yeah. not necessarily network to network. So I did notice, you know, it's actually one of the first things I noticed when you shared this article was they start that this is a virus. And my first thing was, wow, I haven't seen anyone say virus for a long time. Is this just some dumb non-security person misusing the term but this is literally a virus if it's self-replicating to different java files on your computer it is the like perfect example of a traditional virus you're right yeah. um so the malware the virus whatever it's multi-staged um so starting with stage zero this is the malicious code that was injected into the the main class for these java projects so basically every minecraft mod is its own little self-contained jar file, Java file, uh, compiled Java, Java archive, um, which has a, a main class that gets exported. The game will load that up and then basically can call other functions within that class. Um, this is also why Minecraft modding is so powerful because you can basically modify anything you want within the game using these new Java classes. So the malware author injected this little bit of malicious code into the, the main class, basically the main bit of code that gets executed first. It's got some basic obfuscation. It uses byte arrays that are then converted to strings for throughout part of it. So instead of like function name and parameter, it's function name and then string from byte array of 080244, whatever to little bit of obfuscation, but pretty basic. You call that basic, but that is, I would say that's medium basic. You know what I mean? Like okay. we, we showed recently some shortcut link obfuscation where literally they were still trying to obfuscate that they were putting together a string that said something obvious, but they didn't put it in an array. They literally just took the words and made them individual variables that you had to, they just concatenated it right there. And if you have any basic understanding, you could literally still read the string as it was concat at least if you're putting Fair. it in an array uh 
you have to do a little bit more work as a computer, someone reversing the code to figure it out. But I get that it is true that even that is simple obfuscation compared to the crazy encrypted stubs and things they can do now. So, but yeah. Yep. So stuff. basically that injected little bit of code, it creates a URL class loader, which is a type of function in Java that lets you load Java code from a URL, as you might guess. Inside that function, there's a hard-coded IP address and a file called uh, dl.jar, where when this executes, basically reaches out to this hard-coded IP, downloads this other jar file, dl.jar, and then executes it as a new utility class. So that's stage zero. All it does is hard-coded IP, grabs malware, runs it. Stage one is that dl.jar. By the way, could I say file? that it, it grabs malware because they now looked into what dl.jar is, but... I would admit at this stage, if you're just looking at code, you would like, I could see almost any program ha having a URL class loader that goes, downloads a blob of information for an update in dl.jar. I could imagine some company naming their little update file. So we know it's malware because now they've analyzed dl.jar, but so far, at least even in the design of how they wrote this stage, at first blush, you could easily confuse this for just some sort of update mechanism that was part of the mod. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Thinking URL class loader. It is a built-in function. Like it's there for a yeah. purpose to do exactly this. So this on its own isn't like straight up malicious. It's a bit sketchy for a Minecraft mod the, to yeah. do this. The byte array, the byte array hiding it. Yes. Sketchy part. Yeah. Uh, so stage one file. Uh, first, it makes sure it's the only copy of its own process running. So it checks to see if a process is running. If it is not, it starts that process and names itself that. Uh, that's a way where, you know, if you infect multiple mod files in a Minecraft installation, it doesn't spin up 20 different processes trying to do the same thing and potentially colliding. Uh, it connects to another hard-coded IP address as a command and control address. And it actually had a backup mechanism in case that IP went down where it connected to a Cloudflare page, which is basically a text file with another list of IPs, where it could use that to update its command and control address. Uh, from the command and control connection, it downloads either lib.jar if it's running on Linux, or libwebgl64.jar if it's running on Windows. And it sets them to auto run using either the run registry key in Windows, or creates a new service called systemdutility.service on Linux. Uh, so that's stage two. Stage one was grabbing the dl.jar. Stage two has a way of updating its command and control IP, grabbing a Linux or Windows version, and then setting them to run on startup. Uh, stage two then is libjar and libwebgl.64, uh, whatever, the Windows and the Linux one. <laughs> uh, they are pretty basic on their own. They've got some more obfuscation, but they're effectively just malware loaders that then call to the same IP address and download client.jar. Client.jar is the actual like malware itself. So this includes uh, the ability to self-propagate to every single .jar file on the file system and inject that original stage zero into them as a form of persistence, can uh, steal cookies and account credentials from your web browser, it can uh, replace cryptocurrency wallet addresses on your system clipboard. So if you go to copy something within your clipboard, it'll change it presumably to one under the attacker's control. Can steal Microsoft Discord and Minecraft account credentials. Um, and it even adds a Windows shortcut that downloads and executes a script on startup that first checks to see whether Java is installed. And if not, it goes to azul.com and downloads it and runs it and then re-downloads that stage one file, uh, the dl.jar file, and executes it as another form of persistence. So basically, like this thing, true virus, self-replicates to other related files on the system. That actually bit one mod developer where uh, one of their developers was testing just a mod to include in their mod pack. That one was infected. When they tested it and infected all other mods on their system, which they then bundled into their mod pack and then delivered this mod pack full of infected versions of all of them. <laughs> so that bit the way, right there was interesting. Well, you pointed out at the beginning, how did this, how did it first get infected? They claimed they had MFA. So how did it happen? 
But could that, I mean, this could have been independent of the Minecraft mod community if they just targeted a developer that was work they knew was working with Java files, maybe for other reasons. If they somehow, hey, try this. Oh, you make this mod. Try this mod that I have you, and they install something and it has a downloader. They get it. Then it infects all their packages, and they have to be they happen to be someone committing to the sites that are distributing their mods too. You know what I mean? So it could, and because you say specifically, this can steal cookies. Once I have the cookie, if you had just logged on to, you know, Bucket ten minutes ago, your cookie gets me into Bucket without MFA. Yeah, you're so absolutely the, correct. It, that there is could one. be a, a first infection that first got this, and that this was the way they got past MFA and got spread via all the other mod communities. It certainly fits in line with what the actual malware is trying to do. Clearly, the malware author knows what they're looking for and potentially then how to use what yeah. they're trying to steal. So, yeah, it is that kind of, is a fair it, it, We haven't seen a lot of viruses like the, the we, we've definitely seen a lot of worms, things that try to self spread to other computers over a network, but not something that's trying to spread to a certain type of common file type on your computer with the, to be honest, a virus kind of wants to be a worm too. It, it doesn't just want to be on the files of your computer, but I think the virus's strategy is by infecting multiple files that you might share, it can get off your computer too. So if you're someone that shares jar files, it, you know, this seems that unfortunately this is a good threat actor technique. Maybe virus type malware will come back targeting java libraries and other common tools it makes like sense in like this scenario where java is so dang powerful um yeah. good news in this particular case so all of the hard-coded command and control ips they've all been null routed thanks to abuse reports cloudflare has taken down the that backup mechanism for it as well uh for the most part i think all all of the affected mods have been cleaned up on curseforge curseforge themselves right. put out a, a blog post with a detector tool they built for Linux and Windows to look for any of this stage zero injection anywhere on your computer. They also have a list in that blog post of all of the affected mods in case you happen to be a Minecraft player that uh, does mod your Minecraft. You might want to check that out if you haven't already. It looks like this my activity. daughter. She is not a modder, but she I, I tried to get into it a while ago and she recently tried one, I think. So I might have to go check her computer now, Mark. Thanks. <laughs> it does sound like the activity originated or started within the last like 48 hours as oh, of she's recording this fine. right now. So if you haven't updated a mod in the last like two days, you're probably okay. Um, but anyways, yeah. Super interesting and very different than the kind of, I don't know, script kitty-esque uh, hacking or malware you tend to see in the the mod community uh, when something gets infected. But by the way, a general just if you are a Minecraft point. player, definitely check it out. Oh wait, Mark, before we go to the next topic, I thought one other talking point is just generally mods. I mean, I know we're security experts and this is a security podcast, but you and I are gamers and I like modding. I think it's pretty darn cool. I've been doing it for a long time. But I think beyond this exact thing, you got to kind of recognize that modding is a risk. You know, I think we talk a lot about for mobile apps, mobile security, you should only download things from first first party repositories from the Apple store or the Google Play store, or if you're downloading Linux, download it from the official repository. And modding is fun and good and can be safe if you know what you're doing, but you really are getting software from a third party repository. And I mean, I don't know what the takeaway is because I don't want to stop modding, but unfortunately, if you're not a coder and you're not actually validating some of your these mods yourself, you got to recognize there's risk there. So definitely think about it. If you're a company that has infosec policies, you know, gaming may not be something that's business. So you may not expressly tell people they can game on their computer. But even if you think about allowing people to game, you should think about how modding does have security risks and uh, pay attention at least to the communities to make sure that when they do find booby trap mods like this one, you know. Yeah. And it is very easy to, uh, accidentally end up at a sketchy mod source and just like sketchy sources for other software end up with something yeah. similar to this attack. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So moving on, 
Uh, this story starts on May 31st, where the software manufacturer Progress uh, disclosed a SQL injection vulnerability in their popular file sharing application, uh, Move It Transfer. So <laughs> it is an interesting name. Uh, if you're not familiar with Move It Transfer, it's used by a lot of rather large organizations as like a file transfer sharing, file sharing mechanism. Uh, can help share confidential files or at least store and maintain confidential files. Uh, anyways, uh, so they noted that when they initially released this vulnerability disclosure on the 31st, they said the impact could disclose database structure or, or contents of the database or even allow an attacker to delete an entire database. Very basic hallmark SQL injection, SQL injection styles yeah, of yeah. impacts. Yeah. On June 2nd, though, uh, Mandiant published their own article that described the issue more of a code execution flaw uh, that they had evidence of being exploited as early as May 27th to deploy web shells on vulnerable systems. So SQL injection, getting access to the database, getting access to the actual database application itself. You can sometimes run system level commands like commands on the underlying operating system through that SQL database. So it's not that big of a, a jump to think if you can get SQL injection, you can potentially run a command. I might jump yeah. in. Like, it's been a long time since I've made a website with a database backend. But besides the fact that you can run other SQL commands, period, and that is bad, isn't it also possible that like your web your database for your website can be a lot of things. It can be where if uh, people are entering into a forums where you keep the data they enter, it can be if there's a password where you store the hash credentials and the name. But it could also be something that is storing index of files on your website. So is it possible that even if there was that appears SQL injection just by placing a PHP file in the right place in a database that might be indexing a bunch of things that go into a certain UR on the site just loads that page you 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 placed in the database at the right place and bam that's why the web shell executes it is entirely people... possible but man if you are storing your web yeah it would be a silly silly thing to be do database but we also say it's silly to create websites that don't use you know pre-programmed procedures to sql rather than concatenating procedures right in your web application we also say it's silly that uh, you don't have a web site guest account and you use the SA, you know, full root SQL server password for your website. There's a lot of things we tell people not to do that some idiots do still do. So I think I, I, I'm, I'm probably pulling strings. It's probably more the code execution route you're going, but people still do the dumb things we tell them not to. <laughs> and I guess like giving credit to your hypothesis too, it is a, a database related to a file transfer application. Yes, there's and files so, being stored. <laughs> yeah, theoretically, at least like, yeah, could be. So anyways, Mandiant found it, uh, malware being or web shells being deployed on affected systems. They named the web shell uh, Lemur Loot. Okay. <laughs> I guess they didn't like uh, Microsoft, so they're using weird animals tied to, I don't know, game Whatever. drops. Um, so this, this web shell though, they think it's specifically designed to run on systems that use move it transfer software. So it includes the ability to generate move commands. It, move for that it. I know where lemur comes from now. Got to move oh, it, move man. it. You know, that probably is it. That, that is totally that. it. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. Oh, it's actually funny, at least. At least we know why they picked a silly name. Yep. Damn Got it. To move okay. It, move it. Anyways, so the, the web shell includes the ability to create commands for the move it transfer software uh, for things like enumerating files and folders. Every time you say move it, Mark, if you're not watching the YouTube version of our podcast, guys, you're missing out. For the affected software. Uh, yeah. <laughs> retrieve configuration information of the affected software and create or, or delete users in the affected software. Affected software. What's that so, software again? It's, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, Mandiant believes that the web shell is 
uh, likely related or used to steal data previously uploaded to uh, the affected software. By oh, users. Man, I really have done it. You're never going to say it again, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, so <laughs> uh, Mandiant believes that the uh, the activities associated with a threat actor, they label uh, Fin11. So if you're not familiar with Fin11, they're Financial the ones actor. responsible for the, yep, the CLOP ransomware variant. Um, on June 5th, Microsoft published a blog post basically corroborating Mandiant's findings and that Fin7 were using the uh, affected software vulnerability to deploy clock, <laughs> CLOP ransomware. Uh, so interestingly enough, Microsoft calls Fin11 uh, Lace Tempest using their new naming convention. Well, there We've we go. They brought up Microsoft. It yeah, doesn't seem exactly. to be working if we still have two names, though. <laughs> exactly. Uh, then on June... Why there's lemurs. I think there's only one name that's going to stick with me. <laughs> on June 7th, uh, CISA and the FBI put out a joint cybersecurity advisory confirming that they had evidence of Fin11 or Lace Tempest, whatever you want to call them, uh, using this affected software vulnerability <laughs> <laughs> to... Uh, Deploy crop ransomware via the lemur loot web shell. Uh, so CISA and FBI and their alert, if you look it up, they actually have some Yara rules that you can use to threat hunt for some of the known IOCs as well, too, to see if you were affected. Uh, a search on Shodan a bit ago found that there are 2,500, uh, dang it, move it transfer servers uh, discoverable nice. on the internet. Thank you. Um, so... So far, we've seen, you know, Mandiant, Microsoft, and now CISA and the FBI warning about ransomware being delivered by it. It's not just ransomware. Uh, so Zealous, which is a pretty big UK-based HR software manufacturer, uh, they confirmed that their own MoveIt system was compromised uh, and that payroll data from several customers, including British Airways and the BBC, had been stolen uh, through this vulnerability. Uh, the government of Nova Scotia put out a statement recently that some of their citizens' private data may have been stolen by a similar compromise. So this vulnerability seems pretty dang widely yeah. impacting across the world. Yeah. Hey, Mark, you might say that when it comes to ransomware, the CLOP threat actors know how to move it, move it. <laughs> <Sorry>. Why? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, I promise if this you, is a kombucha. It's not a beer. <laughs> if you uh, if you happen to be a a affected software user, uh, make sure it's not exposed to the internet first and foremost. And if it is, make sure you've installed the latest patches. Uh, use some of Mandiant's and CISA's and FBI's Yara rules and other threat hunting uh, signatures to try and figure out if you've been affected. This feels like just the how widely it's propagated. If you have a a move it transfer server exposed to the internet and you haven't patched it in the last week, this feels patch, like patch, a patch. it's too late situation, yeah. potentially. <laughs> check it first. <laughs> yes, check it first, and then patch or rebuild if you do I wonder identify if they, it. You, you'd think, by the way, if someone's done a Shodan search to find the 2500 move it, this seems like it would leave a very obvious externally exposed indicator with that web shell. So I'm sure mm -hmm. there's actually, I, has anyone... I guess I didn't. Does that 2,500 exposed servers, is it literally one with the web shell installed? Because you could craft a showdown or census search specifically looking for not only that it's open, that it's infected. My gut tells me that CISA and the FBI didn't want to let you know how many web shells are available for you to go. Maybe we should. If we look a little closer, we know how to use showdown. Especially Anyways. because in... Uh... <laughs> And in the CISA report, it shows you exactly how the web shell works, including how authentication works in it as well, too. So oh, wow. if you happen to find <laughs> one. Some access. Yeah. Correct. So I, I think asked that's more because they... you said it, it could be too late. And I think uh, my, my question is, if those 2,500 are affected, you're right, it is too late. But maybe the threat actors are not taking over as many as they could. I, I don't it's know. Possible. But that's that's why I might look. Yeah. Either way, if you are a, a move it transfer customer, uh, it's definitely time to review your system. Uh, Go so watch the CGI on. movie. They're fun. Moving on <laughs> to the uh, the last bit for this 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 episode. Uh, our good friends at Verizon just released their 2023 Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report. And uh, I know we've gone through and A, we the were participants in it. 
uh, I think the last four years now we've been uh, participants and um, helping provide some statistics to go into the report. Uh, but this year we figured we'd go through some of the key findings out of it, at least some of the big, in my opinion, headline generating stats from it and uh, have a quick Corey, what are your hot takes on these uh, walkthrough on the podcast? <laughs> so first stat that uh, I guess there's three big ones or four big ones from like the main intro of it that seemed interesting. Uh, so first off, if you're not familiar with the Verizon data breach investigations report, basically they take information about data breaches and security incidents over the course of the year. They try and figure out how it happened, like the category of uh, or tactic or technique the threat actor used to get in. Was it internal, external, use phishing, malware, hacking, whatever. They break this all out by vertical as well, too. So finance and insurance, healthcare, education. And then they display this in their big 60 page report, breaking out all of that. Um, so when it comes to the, the, the breaches for the last year, they found 83% of breaches involved a external actor. Um, so the overwhelming majority of breaches are still being caused by outside threat actors. 74% uh, of breaches involve the human element, which I think is actually down from last year's report. Hmm. If I remember right, last year it was in the upper 70s or so. Uh, when they say the human because element. Because that is one of my hot takes we'll talk about after you finish the four. Yeah. Uh, human element, quick uh, description. It's everything from phishing, social engineering, but also human mistakes. Basically, anything a human has done in order to potentially cause the breach intentionally or accidentally. 49% uh, of breaches involved credentials of some sort. And then 24% of breaches involved ransomware, which is actually up from 10% in 2021, the last time they ran that stat. Um, and in fact, it was responsible for nearly a third of all breaches in the education sector specifically. So pause here for a second. Any hot takes, Corey, on those main stats? I mean, I mean, I don't think any of them surprise either of us. Uh, I do. I always like whenever I now we're the CSO office, Mark and I. Now, if you've followed Mark and I for a long time, we've always been kind of security experts and thought leaders, but we haven't actually had to run the security of WatchGuard until the past before that we were mostly a research organization and helped with product and I, can, I won't speak for you mark you can let us know if it's the same for you but i love information security but to me the thing that always fascinated me was the technical aspects of it zero day attacks non-user non-user interaction attacks you know these technical software vulnerabilities or little tricks you can do to get computers or networks to do things that nobody wants you to do without having to worry about tricking or scamming someone into things. I obviously social engineering and the human element has been a huge part of security since the beginning of time. But when I was more of a security nerd guy, my focus was my, my personal interest is on the technical stuff. And I'm like, oh, I just have to have this technical control to fix this technical problem, or I have to patch this and I fix this issue. And that is not the security issue at all. Now that we're dealing like that's the freaking easy part, setting up the right controls, making the right policy, making the smart technical decisions to minimize problems. Get, don't get me wrong, a lot of people don't do enough there, but that should be the easy part. And I think you can tell if it's the same for you as a real CISO, what we really are are human communication people and psychologists. We have to make figure out how to get people to do the right thing despite all our protections. We have to get them to stop turning off our protections or finding a way around them or using some external SaaS app that we haven't sanctioned because it wasn't new. So to me, the big stat there, you know, I think insiders are a threat, but the fact that most real attacks are external attackers, no surprise. Breaches involving credentials, we've known that for a long time. And frankly, that's probably tied to the human because there's probably a way that credential was leaked. And ransomware, I'm just bored of. We know it's going, it's, it's well done. But the human element one hits me every time. It just reminds me that as an actual acting CSO, 
we really need to be focused more on the human element, even though the technical place is probably where we started and where we're comfortable and where, you know, ones and zeros always add up to the right thing. So we know the right solution to the problem. But the human element and the psychology around what gets people to do the right thing, even if it's harder, that is a much bigger problem just in general for cybersecurity experts that are actually doing it for their business. Yeah, well said. Nothing else to add on that one. Um, so you said you're bored of ransomware. There's one ransomware stat I want to throw out here, though. Sorry, so they actually, that means that we need to go over the stats. That <laughs> they, uh, they actually cite the FBI's uh, IC3 report uh, in this section where they note that 93% of all ransomware incidents had no loss. So 93% of the ransomware incidents reported to the FBI last year didn't actually cause any financial loss to the organization. Meaning you they could didn't presume... pay the ransom, they had a backup, uh, even if there was a reputation thing that the ransomware authors were trying to do, it didn't really affect them. Yeah, which is actually, that's the way spray. higher than I thought it would have been. That yeah, means that it makes we me as a, yeah, we as a yeah. world are doing better at having good backup and recovery mechanisms. We know not paying the ransom is sometimes a tough personal injury, but to me, that actually makes me feel better because I think you and I have said forever that I know it's hard, but not paying the ransom is an important thing of not making this stop or of making this stop. So the fact that 93% are getting through it without a loss is definitely encouraging. For the other 7%, though, the median loss is $26,000, which is up more than double from 2021. In the upper 95th percentile, the losses sit right between 1 million and 2.25 million. So the losses can ramp up, but overall, like 93% of organizations have set themselves up where they suffered a ransomware attack, but they had no loss, at least mon yeah. financially, that they reported That's to the FBI. News. By the that way, this good. gets to something that I think I present and you present sometimes too. And I think I hate to spoil it, so I won't go into much detail because it is a point we'll talk about a little later. But in that same IC3 report, I'd say I'm sick of ransomware. It's still important for you guys to know about it because it is still one of the main ways they're trying to monetize. So it's just, we've talked about it for so much. Every one of you listening, you, you know about it. Uh, but the latest thing I get from the ICS report is... Even if you look at cybersecurity and even normal media headlines, ransomware is often the focus for everyone. And yet the second part of that IC3 report is even though, you know, there's no loss, maybe the costs have gone up for people losing money, where they do say most of the financial losses is in business uh, email compromise. This is, by the way, usually phishing, basic things that involve a human element that email security is, is as old as time, so we don't talk about it as much because it's kind of this known, yeah, phishing, we know how to handle that, attachments are bad, the end. But no, according to FBI's IC3, business email compromise is costing at least the U.S far, far more money, literally billions versus millions compared to ransomware. So yeah. I think we'll talk about that later, but let's keep going with the the, der, the Derber. The Derber. So in the Derber, <laughs> uh, to get a little technical, they pointed out Log4j, uh, so the log for shell vulnerability specifically that popped up towards the end of 2021, but mostly ramped up into 2022. Uh, they highlighted that and said that 32% of all Log4j scanning occurred within the first 30 days of release. And my hot take on that is Log4Shell was a massive vulnerability in that as a consumer, someone that deploys software, it's extremely difficult to know what logging library your applications are using and thus whether they're vulnerable or not. Yeah, it's yeah, not just like as a reminder, you, you can install Log4j on your own, but for most people, they don't even know what it is. It came with some product they purchased, and that product happens to be using this in the background. Yeah, and it was a like 10 out of 10 code execution vulnerability that was trivial to exploit and vulnerable systems. And so by a large chunk of the scanning for it, so trying to find vulnerable systems occurring within the first 30 days, like it shows you don't have a lot of time to identify and jump on critical vulnerabilities like that. Well, once they go public, you're going to get popped soon. So even back to our last story of those 2,500, you know, move it servers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what probably why you said you might be already affected because once it goes public, you'll get popped quick. Yep. 95% uh, of breaches were financially motivated. Duh. 
that kind of makes sense. <laughs> I'd say state-sponsored um, actors are the only exception, but of course, state-sponsored. But actually, there's a couple state-sponsored actors that are going financial on us. But even then, it's still duh. Like it makes also sense that the espionage-type cybersecurity would really be the low noise compared to the pure volume of what criminals are doing. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about social engineering for a bit. So pretexting makes up just over half of all social engineering. Uh, pretexting is like the technical term for basically spear phishing. So using pretending to be someone you know or work with in order to launch that spear phishing attack could be a person, could be an organization, whatever. Or um, information against you. I mean, pretexting essentially learn something about you and they're using that bit of information to try to get you to, to gain their trust. Uh, yeah, you in your yep. trust. <laughs> You mentioned business email compromise already. So as a volume of the total incident data that Verizon looked at, it doubled more in the last year. So business email compromise is absolutely on the rise, just even in raw volume, um, which makes sense. And then email still makes up 98% of phishing, uh, though they did know that sometimes a email fish like the hook can transition into an other communications method, which I think we've seen regularly at WatchGuard. Like yeah. we get emails saying, hey, it's Prakash, our CEO. Can you text me at this text number? Text me or set up a meeting. I will say about that, I think it's a, we don't have to worry about it this prediction season because I think it was a prediction from last year, but we did have one prediction that uh, application, you know, one, this, this does suggest smishing, text-based phishing, while we have, I've anecdotally seen it blown up on my own phone, it's still a drop in the bucket. If 98% is email, smishing is still kind of small. But to get back to our prediction from, I think, only one year ago, we said that messaging application-based phishing, so think things that look like a text messaging app, but it's like, you know, Facebook WhatsApp, Messenger, WhatsApp. Maybe yeah, Telegram is a great option. Even things like Teams, which aren't really purely text, but they act like a texting app. We talked about that amount of that type of phishing going up. And while it may have changed a little bit from before, obviously it's still not significant. So maybe that prediction is still kind of a meh. Yep. Um, moving on. So for specific types of breaches, or at least causes, Breaches that were caused by errors, they found the majority of them were committed by either developers or systems administrators. Uh, so basically, you as the person handling potentially sensitive data are more likely to potentially accidentally leak that data, whether by sending it to the wrong destination, misconfiguring a permissions control around it. Makes sense. This is a, this is a big deal one, though, because... To me, it makes sense that a developer and system admin, and I, I, I don't think they say it clearly, but I think even people in our office, like a CISO office, sometimes are qualified as system admins because we're given privileged access. So I don't know if they need to divide IT-based system admins versus security ones. But it makes sense that that's who bad guys would target because high privilege, that's the privilege you want. But the flip of that, Mark, I think is, I would naturally, whether it's a good expectation or not, I wouldn't expect like the accountant or a salesperson or a support person to have the same security knowledge of knowing what mistakes not to make that I would expect of developers of and system admins. So to me, this is kind of surprising. I, I sometimes, I think actually a lot of people sometimes we we unfairly give this example of if it is a human error, it was some very underprivileged employee clicking on malware in an email, and then the threat actor has to do a lot of privilege and escalation and pivoting to get to the developer system admin rights, but it's not, it, the mistake was that low privileged user. I expect a little more of developers and system admins because with that knowledge, they, they tend to know a little bit more about security or they at least should with the power they have. So I would say this, this might tr change who I would want to train. You know, I think with a lot of security awareness training, I'm like, oh, all the non-technical users, they're the ones I have to focus on. IT guys kind of get it. So training, watch it just for a check mark, but I know it's kind of going to be boring for them. This suggests that they're the problem. 
Yeah. Or I, I mean, not every mis. Yeah, they're, they're accidental mistakes too. Or so. at least in a in a position where their mistakes can immediately become a serious issue. Yeah. I think is a big so they just have to have more vigilance. I mean, anyone, even us that know security right, can make an accidental mistake. But it just proves that if you have the privilege. It's like me sending them, if I write something for a publication, I'll edit it five times and make sure it's beautiful before I send it. But if I send you a text message, I don't bother editing I'm it. I'm lucky if I can like read crap. it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but as a person that's privileged, if I'm doing quick changes on a network, I have to treat everything like the thing that I edit five times before I send it out. So just maybe a good reminder for us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, pivoting to the healthcare sector specifically, Stat that stood out for me there was thirty five percent of healthcare breaches involved internal threat actors. So not just like a mistake from an internal person, but a actually malicious inside internal threat actor. That's kind of nuts. Thirty five percent is not a small number. Yeah, it kind of conflicts with the global one of most breaches are external. But yep. I find the the verticalization. I mean, if you are a healthcare provider, you should pay attention to this. Despite you know, if you read the global stat and you think it's mostly external threat actors you have to worry about, like Mark says, I I would think about. I wonder what about healthcare encourages that. They specifically pointed out like disgruntled employees is a likely avenue for this. I know the last couple of years have after been the pandemic, yeah, <laughs> extremely rough for healthcare practitioners, uh, yeah, and you could imagine right. there's. Speaking as someone in the family of a healthcare practitioner, uh, you often hear uh, like nurses, as an example, talking down about the administration. So the the actual business folks of the hospital, they tend to butt yeah. heads, the healthcare providers versus the administration administration wing. And you could imagine a scenario with a disgruntled like healthcare provider yeah. doing something to get back. I'd at assume them. even with a doctor. Well, I'm sure doctors yeah. are something someone nurses complain about. A doctor actually takes an oath that I'm here to help people. But the administration, hospitals are not, they're, they're for-profit businesses. <laughs> so the business administration is typically, we're for profit, and the doctors and nurses are, we've taken an oath to help people. So I, I could see how- see why they would butt heads. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, let's see, focusing on SMBs. Uh, so for SMBs, 92% uh, of breaches involved either system intrusion, social engineering, or basic web attack hacks in comparison to all of the other options, including like errors, like one of the ones we highlighted earlier. This is in comparison to 85% for those categories for large businesses. So it seems like for smaller ones, it's primarily like the what I would consider the bread and butter hacking of a malware network attack web attack huh. or social engineering kind of maybe thing. it talks about the maturity because when we talked about the human element attack and i had to remind myself that it's not about technical it's about people but then i said except there's some companies that still just don't get the technical right even though it's easy maybe it has to do with money and maturity if you're if you don't have the people to put the security you're still you're you're messing up the easy part, which is the 101 technical. So you yeah. certainly don't have time for the human. But the larger businesses have at least got the maturity to figure out the technical part. So that's why maybe they drop down yeah, in the basic stuff and human hits them more. Um, for SMBs, the majority of breaches resulted in compromised credentials. So like the actual data stolen was credentials. Uh, whereas only 37% of breaches was, uh, resulted in stolen internal data. On the flip side, for larger businesses, 41% were internal data and only 37% were stolen mm -hmm. credentials. So it seems like when you're targeting a small business, you know maybe their crown jewels aren't worth as much, but their user credentials are yeah, still totally worth quite a bit. It's actually, yep. it, if it makes sense with the story. We used to tell SMBs why they're the tar. I mean, the SMB would say, I'm not Coca-Cola. I don't have the formula to Coca-Cola. No one wants to steal my data. I just sell noodles to my customers at a restaurant. And that's why you don't have to worry about them stealing your internal data. But, I've had some pretty dang second. good noodles. Uh, that's true. <laughs> I, I'm oversimplifying, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But that it, that faux restaurant has credit cards and probably passwords associated with the people that log into the till. So no matter if you're big or small, you might have credentials of your own employees and your users that do. It all yep. it all checks out. And then finally, wrapping up, they actually as well as statistically <laughs> checks out anecdotally. 
they <laughs> ended the report statistics. by just... they, they provide the hard quantifiable analytics by the way we helped them with a few of our own and i supplied this anecdotal information with no backing whatsoever mark yep exactly as is tradition <laughs> uh so <laughs> they talk about specific cis controls that they recommend organizations implement Starting with small business, they focused on control 14, which is security awareness and skills training, control 11, which is data recovery, and control 5, which is access control management. They said those will cover the majority of the data breaches that they had reported. Human element for the first, ransomware recovery, so you don't have to pay for the second, and getting rid of the basic stuff that SMBs suffer for the third. And then when you go up to a mid-size enterprise, though, the three you should focus on are 17, which is incident response management, 16, which is application software security, and 18, which is penetration testing. And those you guys got the, the basics done, so you better have a sock by now. <laughs> exactly. So overall, like the report's great. Uh, they do a good uh, like landing page, splash page kind of thing with an executive summary. If you don't feel like reading 77 pages worth of breach data. Um, but even just skimming it, you'll find some interesting stuff related to your specific vertical in there as well, too. Definitely as much check as out. As I joke about anecdote, I really respect this report. It's not just Verizon takes the Herculean task of gathering tons of data, but it truly is. a. If you look at the contributors to this report, there's many vendors from many industries. So uh, it's and it it is quantifiable data. So it's a great report for sure. Definitely check it out. At the very least, read the executive summary. And coming soon, WatchGuard's Internet Security Report. Maybe we'll be chatting about that on a very future soon, very future soon, upcoming podcast. I need to find a way. I, I think the security story of the month, which we won't have this quarter, but if we do, it should be on move it, move it, Mark. <laughs> okay, whatever. End it. Kill it. <laughs> With fire. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can still reach out to us on Twitter. I have not canceled my account yet, but we're getting pretty close. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. I like to move it, move it. Ugh.